going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get there shortly. I am uh, I'm glad and honored to be preaching today and wanted to just uh, a word of hello and not reintroduction, but in a sense, maybe. Um, my wife and I have actually, and family have been here since 2016. I can't believe it's been six years. Man, time flies. Uh, it means that Seth and I are getting older. Uh, I think of that. <laughs> um, anyway, God has blessed us, and I'm grateful for this church, for uh, the ways that you guys have encouraged us, and I pray that we've been an encouragement to you, and I look forward to ways that we can do that in the future. Um, my wife and I shared earlier, we, we met in 1994, Beth and I did, we got married in 1995, and then I took her to the other side of the world in 1996. Um, 1996 was a rough year, uh, but it was a good year. God blessed us, uh, God took care of us. And then we were able to live on the other side of the world for about 16 years uh, with the International Mission Board and serve among an unreached people group. Uh, See God do amazing things. And then 2012, we came back to the States for a time and were very surprised when God called us to stay in the States. And we began to work with the North American Mission Board in West Virginia to help with church planting and missions, similar to what we were doing overseas, but a little bit different. So some of you say, well, you joined the church in 2016, but there's some Sundays I really don't see you here, Danny. What if, are you a church skipper? I'm not a church skipper. I promise I'm not a church skipper. Uh, my work with the North American Mission Board in helping to plant churches around West Virginia sometimes occasionally will take me to other churches on Sunday morning. So I have the privilege of visiting with new church starts across our state to see God work as we engage people in West Virginia Uh, with new churches and with the gospel and see people change lives. Cross Lanes is one of the leading churches uh, in that work. I want to thank you guys for that. And I want to encourage you to continue with the vision of being on mission. Um, We're going to talk about that a little bit today. What does it mean to be on mission? What does it mean to make disciples as we get into Colossians 1? So um, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into the text and we'll ask that God teach us and God would change us. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we can open up the Bible and we can hear from you. God, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. God, that you would change us as uh, we, we read your word and as we hear it, God, as you show us who you are. God, as you show us your plan for the world and how we have a part in that. God, I pray that you would do a great work. I pray you'd do a work here. I pray you'd do a work in the churches um, all over our state. God, you said that the the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, and that we would pray that laborers would be sent out. God, make us laborers who are sent out here. Uh, And God, if you'd call us even farther away, God, that we would be obedient. So bless us, help us as we look at your word in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 15. The title of the 
sermon today is growing in Christian maturity. Growing in Christian maturity. Before we get there, just a little bit of context for Colossians. Paul wrote this letter. Uh, It was a church that Paul had not planted. Actually, probably a church that Paul had never visited. A guy named Epaphras, you find him in Colossians 1 verse 7 there, was one of Paul's partners in the gospel work. And he probably started this church. And he comes to Paul with a report. Uh, Paul is most likely in prison. And the report is that there's a heresy in the church. There's a problem. And in this heresy, Jesus is being minimized. Um, and the church is being divided. There's a, there's a self-made religion. You can read more about this in chapter 2. Self-made religion, false humility, useless traditions. And it was threatening to confuse the church and to hinder the gospel work. So as Paul writes this letter, he's encouraging the Colossian Christians. One, he's encouraging them to stand firm in Christ, who is the sovereign king of the universe. He's encouraging them to stand united as the people of God in Christ. And he's encouraging them to grow in love, holiness, and maturity. So let's look at this first, this first section of Colossians 1.15 and see how it is that God is calling us to grow in Christian maturity. Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the hope and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
I labor for this, striving with his strength that works so powerfully in me. So as we think about growing in Christian maturity and and living out the biblical Christian life, what are three aspects of the mature Christian life that we see here? Three aspects. The first one is this, and we see it in verses 15 through 20. The mature Christian life is a Jesus-centered life. Notice what Paul says here, that Jesus is preeminent in verse 18. He takes first place. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reveals God perfectly. He is the all-powerful creator. He is the head of the church. He is eternal. And he saves us from our sin. The Bible that we read is a Jesus-centered Bible. The songs that we sing are Jesus-centered songs. And as disciples of Jesus, believers in him, the lives that we live ought to be Jesus-centered lives. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. In Genesis 1, and Paul wrote about this in Colossians, Jesus is there at creation, the agent with the Father and the Spirit. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, a promise is made that there would be a Savior who would come, who would be victorious over sin and evil and death. That's Jesus. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the light to the nations, the light of the world promised in Isaiah. He's the suffering servant. And he is the mediator of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies about. That is Jesus. Philippians 2, one of the few, these great Christological passages, one this morning, Colossians 1. Look at John chapter 1. Look at Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 1 and read those and let the word of God just teach us how wonderful and beautiful Jesus is. Philippians 2 tells us about this Jesus, the son of God who was a humble servant and he came and emptied himself on our behalf. The, The high and exalted one took on flesh, obeyed the father to the point of death, even death on a cross and he died in our place. But it says that having obeyed, having died, having been raised up, he has been highly exalted with the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Heaven, on earth, under the earth. The eschatological undertones there, we we think about Revelation 19. From the very beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation, this book is about Jesus. And Jesus is going to come on that war horse leading the army of God on his thigh. What's, again, I'm reluctant to say tattooed on there, but uh, what's on his thigh? King of kings, Lord of lords. That's Jesus. What's the proper response when we understand this Jesus, who he is, what he's done on our behalf? We follow him, we serve him, we obey him. Actually, Jesus taught us how to do those things in Philippians 2 as the, as the servant who came to serve 
to obey and to die. The universe actually follows, serves, and obeys him. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples in the boat? He was asleep and the disciples were scared because there was a storm that could have killed them. They were afraid of that. They'd been on that water before. They knew what was happening. And Jesus gets up and speaks to the wind and the water and tells it to be still and it obeys. This Jesus is the one that we orient our lives around. We live for him. Uh, Galatians 2.20 says that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. So when we have a correct view of Jesus, high, lifted up, Savior of the world, Creator, we understand that our role is to be followers, to be servants, to obey, and to orient our lives around Him. It's not about me. It's about Him. Mature Christian life is a Jesus-centered life. Number two. The mature Christian life is a born-again life. Look at verses 21 through 23 here, where Paul begins to write to the Colossians. And notice what he says there. He says, once, so there was a time when you guys were alienated, you were hostile, and you were evil. Those are rough words. Um, But that's who we were. I've heard... Uh, somebody say, uh, you know, if somebody says something bad about me, it's not worse than what I say about myself on Sunday morning whenever I sing songs about who I used to be. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what Paul's teaching the Colossians. You guys were alienated. You were, you were not a part of God's family. You were hostile in your minds. You did not love God. And you expressed this through your evil actions. But look at verse 22 as we think about the change that God brings to us. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. God has changed us. We've been purified. We've been brought from death to life. I did not understand this as a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid that had grown up going to church, at least some, I thought that being a Christian meant you kind of checked some boxes, uh, do the right things, memorize John three sixteen. When the preacher says, why do you want to get saved? You say, well, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish. That's a great verse. We want to memorize that verse. But I did not understand the new life that Jesus gives to us through his spirit when we put our faith in him. And when I understood that at 19, and that Jesus has reconciled me to the Father, he reconciles us, he makes us holy, faultless, and blameless. I can remember going home and telling my mom, in Christ, I am holy, faultless, and blameless. And she's rewinding to 15, 16, 17-year-old Danny, and she's thinking, no, you're not. Um, Jesus changes us, guys. Look at Colossians 1, 13, 14. When we think about the born again 
life and the change that Jesus brings. says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. And then Colossians 3 talks about the old man, how we put off the old man. And in Christ, we can put on the new man. We're being created and made into the image of Jesus. We're alive. We're forgiven all of our trespasses. No condemnation as a born-again believer. Supernaturally born again into the family of God. Turn with me for just a second to Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4 say this, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a beautiful picture of what God does in our lives when he saves us and changes us and makes us new. We're raised up from the dead with a new life. Romans 8, verse 1, we've alluded to it, but it's one of my favorite verses. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In that same chapter, verses 14 through 17, teach us that the the born-again life, what God does to us when we're born again. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Some of the basic truths of being born again. God gives us new life in Christ through his spirit. The old man dies, the new man comes in. God adopts us into his family. And God gives us eternal hope. Guys, the born again life is so much more then pray a prayer, punch your ticket, and hope it all works out in the end. I'm afraid that sometimes that happens as folks think about the Christian life. But through Jesus, we're given new life. We're adopted into God's family. We have a rock-solid hope based on the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the thing. The only way that hope is shaken is if Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders would have somehow found Jesus' dead body, but they didn't. If they would have, I can tell you. They would have told everybody. But Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead, and he offers us that same life that the Father gave to him when he raised him up. Eternal life in Christ. Think about this. The born-again life is a life where we share in the love of 
that the Father has for the Son through the Spirit. Before anything was ever created, God, Father, Son, Spirit, were loving one another. As believers in Jesus, we share in that love. You've entered into a relationship with the God of the universe because he loves you and wants to save you and desires that you be a child in his family. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 3, was having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. Uh, He knew all the rules. He knew all the traditions. He was going to follow those, check the boxes, and hopefully make his way into heaven. And he comes to Jesus to talk to this man that he's, he's intrigued by and begins to ask him questions. And Jesus cuts to the chase and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I remember when I understood what it meant to be born again and I had become a follower of Jesus and I'm a college student, a little bit, a little bit smart aleck, and I'd gotten this new shirt that I was so proud of. It said, all good people go to heaven, not... Um, I'm not sure anybody got saved from reading that shirt. <laughs> but it taught a lesson. We can't earn it. We've got to be born again into God's family. And that's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. And I wonder on that day, did Nicodemus understand that he didn't have to carry that burden of doing all these things that he could never do to measure up And instead, he let Jesus do it because that's what Jesus came to do. Here's the bottom line of the born-again life, guys. Jesus can change your life. Jesus changes our lives. So if you've come in this morning and you're feeling a burden, if you've never understood that you can be forgiven and accepted into God's family, he can do that for you today. As a believer, if you're burdened, Don't be. He will carry that as well. That's what he does as the son of God. So the mature Christian life, it's a a Jesus-centered life. It's a born-again life. And finally, the third point is the mature Christian life is a disciple-making life. Having been born again, God has work that we can join him in. Having been born again, God has given us purpose for our lives. And as Paul begins his defense here in verses 24 through 29 of his ministry and the work that God's called him to, he introduces an interesting interesting phrase here in verse 24. And he says, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. What in the world could be lacking in Jesus's afflictions? What he is not saying here is that there's anything in any way lacking in Jesus' redemptive work. Jesus' redemptive work was 100% completed on the cross. John 19.30, the last words that Jesus said were, It is finished. The debt has been paid. That sin debt that we owed to God that we could never repay on our own, Jesus paid it, died, and took it to the grave with him. So in verse 24, this lacking that Paul's talking about, it's not the redemptive work of Christ, but instead 
It's the kingdom building work of making disciples of all nations that has not yet been completed. So Jesus did his work, and now he calls us to do ours. There is still much to be done. And there will be difficulty and suffering along the way. I think about uh, Ukrainian brothers and sisters today even, and this last week, as they have helped fulfill parts of this, filling up what's lacking as they serve others and the church in that place. King Jesus has commissioned us to a task, making disciples. Paul says in verse 28 that the goal of that task is that we would present everyone mature in Christ. That word means complete, grown up, not babies. This task This commission to discipleship, which actually Jesus gave to us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. uh, Very much like this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, Now, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. It's work, but it's not burdensome work. In the call to discipleship, God has given us purpose and meaning in this life. Have, have any of you ever asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Have. I used to ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? I changed the question. I finally just started saying, okay, God, what is your will? God, what do you want to see done? What are you doing? God is making disciples. When Jesus came, he made disciples. Certainly he died on the cross to redeem But God is about drawing people in. So when I ask, what is God's will? God, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do? Danny, I want you to make disciples. Be a disciple and be a disciple maker. Now, when we think about discipleship and disciple making, here's what it's not. It is not self-improvement or self-help techniques. Disciple making is the culmination of a Jesus-centered and born-again life. It's how we live as born-again believers. It's the joyful overflow of walking in the Spirit and serving the King of the universe. Tomorrow morning is going to be Monday morning, right? And we're going to wake up, we're going to think about going to work. I pray that we would think of our Monday as, and the work that we're going to do and the service that we're going to give as the joyful overflow of walking in the Spirit and serving the King of the universe. That's what we get to do. Discipleship is not guilt-driven. It is love-driven. It is living out the life of Jesus that already exists in us if we're born again through the power of his spirit. That's what God does. So this idea of discipleship, a a quick definition here. Uh, Matthew 4.19, Jesus is calling some disciples, Peter and Andrew. They're out fishing. Some of you know what Jesus said to them. He says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I believe in this, we see three key attributes of a disciple and a disciple maker. And it involves our head, it involves our heart, and it involves our hands. The first is this, Jesus says, follow me. That's our head. We accept the invitation to follow Jesus as Lord. We submit to his authority and truth And this is an intentional decision that we make 
constantly. And we build a plan around it so that we can move forward following him. Our heart, Jesus says, I will make you. We allow Jesus and we allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Actually, our key verse here at Cross Lanes, John 15, 5, speaks to this very thing. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. We abide in Christ. He changes us. He makes us into the people that he wants us to be. And then the hands. I will make you fishers of men. We follow Jesus and are changed by him for a purpose. And that is to be on mission. And here's the thing. We do this in community with others. I love that when Jesus called Peter, he didn't just call Peter there. He called Peter and his brother. You guys, the 12, you guys are going to work together at this. Then there's going to be this thing called the church, this community of believers that come together and you're on mission together with me. Discipleship is relational. It's, it's not just a program. I'm not, uh, programs are great and, and we want to have these. Um, I'm sitting here looking at Charlie and I'm thinking about every man a warrior, right? Like, yes, that's part of that. And within that, the relationships that we build with one another so that we can encourage each other spur one another on toward love and good deeds in Christ on mission together. That's discipleship. So again, the head, we're following Christ. We're being intentional about this life. Our heart, we're being changed by Christ. We're submitting to his authority and to his word. And our hands, we're committed to the mission of Jesus. Relationships within the church, relationships outside of the church, We're telling people about him. Point of application here with discipleship. Are are you presently in a small group with other Christians studying the word and seeking to apply it to your life? We have this thing here called a Bible fellowship class. Um, Remember when they call it Sunday school? It doesn't matter what you call it. But it's small groups of believers who come together to study the word to be in relationship with one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another in that. And then we move out on mission together. If you aren't a part of a a Bible fellowship class, I want to encourage you to be a part of one. Another point of application with discipleship. Are you discipling your kids at home? Are you reading the Bible to them? Are you helping live out the gospel in your house? Do your kids see that on a regular basis? Now, I think about this a lot. Um, It can be intimidating to disciple others. What if I don't know enough? If you know John 3.16, you know enough to encourage somebody in the faith. I can tell you that. Um, How am I going to disciple my kids? What if My kids know that I messed up. Will they respect me? Will they listen to me? I got some kids in here today. Um, They know I've messed up. Let me tell you this. What we're talking about is not being a perfect parent. We're talking about being a parent who lives out the gospel in your home. 
because you've messed up and you're wondering if your kids will listen when you talk to them about Jesus, ask them to forgive you, right? Like, that's a gospel truth. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. That's what we want to see. That's how we disciple at home. So be a part of that here in the local church. Discipling and being one and making disciples. Be a part of that at home. Being a disciple and making disciples. As we we process and we think through this mature Christian life. Jesus-centered, born-again, and disciple-making life. I've got one last thought, one last question, then we're going to close, and it's this. What are you living for? I've got a quote from a a guy I've been reading a lot lately. His name's Michael Reeves, and it's uh, this book, Overflow, How the Joy of the Trinity Inspires Our Mission. Guys, we, we serve out of the joy of being God's children, belonging to God and being loved just like Jesus is loved. The Son is loved by the Father. What are you living for? What do you love? Can it give you real joy? My friend, I'm going to plead with you now. Don't settle for idols when you can have the real thing. Stop living for anything less than the glory and graciousness of the triune God. Live and die for the glory of Jesus. Don't settle for a good career. It won't satisfy. Don't settle for comfort. It's boring. Don't settle for trying to be popular. The feeling is empty after a while. These things, if you buy into their allure now will bite you and hurt you later. Instead, this day, choose to plant your flag and say, I will live and die for nothing less than the glory of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's what it means to grow in our faith and live for him. I pray that we would continue to do that as his people. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. It is amazing to think that you have, Jesus, you came and died in our place so that we could be a part of your family. God, you've called us to work alongside you on mission so that others can also be reconciled and brought into the family of God. God, I pray that you would do that. God, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We pray that you would grow us up in our faith. And that, God, you would send us out into the harvest field so that those people who are ready and waiting to hear the gospel can hear it. God, they can be reconciled. They can become a part of your family. They can grow up and they can go out as well. God, that's what we desire. I pray you would do it. God, if there's somebody here that has just heard the gospel and understood it for the first time, I pray that they would put their faith in Jesus. God, I pray for those of us who have understood the gospel of God that we would continue putting our faith in Jesus, walking with you in your power every day. In Jesus' name.